This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 266 for Monday, May 21st, 2012. Archimedes. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Abbotsville. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, we're fresh off of our most recent virtual star party, which was a lot of fun. We had uh, a lot of the great summer constellation objects starting to, to show up now. And I think if people haven't had a chance, we connect up a whole bunch of telescopes every Sunday night as soon as it gets dark on the West Coast. So in the summertime, that's around nine. In the West winter coast time, of North America. N- the West Coast of North America. <laughs> the West, yeah. The West Coast of Australia. No, the West Coast of North America. Um, because we've got some great telescopes on the West Coast. And so around nine Pacific or so, we start we start going in the summertime. In the wintertime, it's more like five Pacific. And, uh, and then we just run the telescopes for a couple of hours. We take requests, whatever you want to see. And then Pamela or Phil stop by and we explain the science. And it's a, it's a really good time. So if you want to, you know, we're trying to use this new media, this new technology in interesting ways. And uh, we've been really well aware that the big problem with Astronomy Cast is that it's just audio. And so if we can actually, the, why not incorporate the video? And so we live stream telescopes right onto the Internet. We take requests. It's awesome. And, and if you want to find out about the when the virtual star parties are going to happen and all the other video things that Fraser and I are putting out there on the internet, go to cosmoquest.org, sign up for an account, and sign up to get our newsletter. And every Sunday, Monday, if you're in the Pacific Rim, you'll end up getting a newsletter that lists all the times and all the different things that we're up to. So, for instance, the newsletter that went out last night talked about how myself and noisy astronomer Nicole Gallucci are both going to be at the amazing meeting and we're hoping to meet up with you i'm gonna miss the amazing meeting this year that sounds great this episode of astronomy cast is brought to you by eighth light inc eighth light is an agile software development company they craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable eighth light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better for more information visit them online at www.eighthlight.com just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So it's time to look deep into history to the birthplace of modern mathematics, ancient Greece, and one of the most famous mathematicians of the time was Archimedes. We use many of his mathematical theories and inventions to this day, while others, not so much. They're steeped in legend and mystery. So, so Pamela, do you have like a whole section of, of when you're teaching people when you just go through some of the Archimedes principles? It's more a matter of they keep randomly cropping up depending on what I'm teaching. So when I'm teaching freshman physics, he crops up all through different things that we're trying to understand. So when we start talking about 
basic machines. He came up with the simple Archimedes screw, which was used to raise water. Um, and you can also use it to raise stuff. Then there's he comes up when people start grouching about having to use calculus because he really is the father of the ideas behind calculus, even if he's not the one who developed calculus. Uh, then when we're talking about the initial measurements of distance to the moon, he didn't do that, but he wrote about uh, what was done by Aristarchus. So he just keeps cropping up as this 300 years before Jesus guy who was doing amazing modern mathematics yeah and and also uh for people who want to build death rays he comes up well yes there's that too that that's actually one of the more awesome things that he may or may not have done yeah i think the mythbusters have have taken a real crack at trying to figure out if he had done it but we'll get to that in a, in a little bit so then who was archimedes and sort of when did he live so, so he lived about 300 years BC. 287 BC is is given as um, his birth year, roughly. Died roughly 212 BC. Actually, lived to be an old man by the standards of the time. He lived to be about 75, which didn't usually happen back then. And one of the the sadnesses is he didn't actually die of old age. He died uh, by annoying a. a, a soldier basically there there's a couple of different stories about his death it, it's generally agreed that he he died when the city of um syracuse was captured during the second punic war and that the general who captured the city marcus claudius marcellus had ordered that that he was not to be harmed he he was seen as a scientific mathematical resource that was to be protected um sort of like a lot of the german rocket scientists in world war ii were protected but depending on whose story you read the soldier who came across him either found him doing mathematics in the sand it, this was in the days before whiteboard you used what you had in his case sand was the moral equivalent of a whiteboard and um According to one story, he was working figures in the sand and the soldier said, come with me and was going to take him to the general. And, and he said, no, 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 I need to finish the calculation I'm doing. And so the soldier killed him. Um, according to the other story, the mathematical instruments that he had with him were seen as being either of value or dangerous. And he was killed for the mathematical instruments that he had. In either case, um, the, the general, Marcellus, was rather annoyed at the soldier because he was a valuable protected resource that was killed essentially for no reason a little old doddering man who basically mouthed off to a soldier you can just imagine i don't know that'd be like an episode of the big bang theory you know you can imagine <laughs> you because can see sheldon right doing yeah because he was just like he was just like a like a quintessential clearly a quintessential math geek and he was like no no i gotta finish my calculation yeah. you know when it when a soldier upon threat of death was telling him to come along most like, people no. would come along but no archimedes had to finish his calculation clearly he had some ideas that he had to get out of his head okay so so that was how he lived and he died but yeah. there had to be some interesting stuff in the middle so so where did he sort of get started and i know the big problem with a lot of these these scientists from antiquity is that there's just so little information on him. Yeah, so so we don't know a lot about him. Luckily, he he was uh, written about a bit by Plutarch. 
he did a lot of his own writing. And so while we don't know the day-to-day details, we don't know if he had kids, we don't know if he was even married, we, we don't know any of those, we do know a lot about who he corresponded with based on his writings. So it, it's imagined that he might have uh, studied in Alexandria of Egypt because of correspondence he had with Conan of Samoas and Erastathenes of Cyrene. So the fact that he was corresponding with these people as friends leads many to think, well, per- perhaps he studied with them in Alexandria. It's a guess. We do know that he spent significant portions of his life in Syracuse uh, on the island of, of Sicily. And that he was one of the most renowned both mathematicians and builder of random things. And and I think it's the building of random things and the solving of random problems that relied on both experiment and mathematics that he gets remembered for. Lots of people have seen the various cartoons of a, a naked Archimedes springing out of the bath with a king's crown. It's a cartoon. The king's crown was not in the bath with him because he was he was given the task of determining if a crown the king had made uh, was made of pure gold or not. And and trying to figure out how to do this short of melting the crown was a bit problematic. But he, he is supposedly the person who, while in the bath, thinking realized as he moved and the water level moved that water is for the most part an uncompressible fluid. And so if you take something and it submerges completely in the water. The amount of water displaced is going to give you the volume of the object. And based on the volume and the weight of the object, you can measure its density. If you can measure its density, you can figure out if it's made of pure gold or not, because pure metals, each pure metal has a different density. And sure enough, it turned out the crown was polluted with silver. So his Eureka moment where he's said to have sprung out of the bath naked, screaming Eureka. um, No one knows if that's true or not. But we now torture all good first year physics students with repeating Archimedes experiment. You like give them a crown, put them in the bath and tell them to determine if it's pure gold or not. It, it's usually not a crown. It's it's usually a series of small cylinders of pure metals and and a graduated cylinder and you say, "Here are these metals. Figure out what they are. Here's a periodic table. You're on your own." And uh, they have to use Archimedes principle to measure the density of these different objects and then determine what are they? And so just to sort of explain to people who perhaps uh, have never done this, you would take these these cylinders of metal, you would put them in the water, and you would be able to determine how much water they displace based on their density. Yes. Well, it, it, you also have to weigh them. Um, so, right. so they displace a given volume. Now, now, the other thing that comes out of this is he also figured out the buoyancy principle. So you figure out the density of something that's able to completely submerge by measuring it, its mass and um, then measuring how much water is displaced. This gets you the density. Now, the other thing you can do is he figured out that the mass of the water displaced by a boat or something else that's floating is equal to the mass that that is doing the floating bit and and so this is the buoyancy principle so if you have a giant steel ship the reason it's able to to float is because it's displacing a given amount of water and the water's pushing on it and it's pushing on the water and um 
it's it it all works out with the buoyancy force right that the overall density of the ship when you include all the air that's inside is mm-hmm. still going to be lower than the density of water and so it's more buoyant than the water and it floats up on top and and water weighs a remarkable 62 pounds per cubic foot so that means you take a, a, a area that is the size of your standard floor tile and cubit. So you have a three-dimensional square that would fit on that standard floor tile. And that small volume of water weighs about half as much as your standard teenage girl. And so you have a vast amount of weight in water, and you don't have to displace a lot of water to float a human or even to float a ship. And not to sort of go to Mythbusters too often, but didn't they even like make a ship out of concrete and yeah, they you know, did. That they was made, a kind of or awesome, stone. They awesome. made a ship out of stone. Yeah. Anyway, the point they made being one that, out of cement. Out of cement. Yeah. The point yeah. being that you can, and that's how you can do it with steel, right? The point is, yeah. as long as the overall density of what it is that you're working with is lower than the density of the water, the whole thing is going to float. As long as the water doesn't yeah. get in. As soon as the water gets and, in, then that then it's going to sink. And building cement canoes is kind of a standard thing to ask civil engineers to do because it's fun to torture them. Plus, cement's fun to play with. That's cool. Right. So so I think, you know, if there's anything to take away from, it's this whole concept of Archimedes' principle. And really, if you've gone, you've taken any math, any science, any physics, you will have run up against this and you will have done the calculations to determine the amount of uh, of sort of the density of various objects. And this is used all the time. Even in astronomy, I mean, astronomers right. are calculating the density of of planets, of stars, or or to more to the point, we we are are much we use the buoyancy principle, which he came up with for those uh, stratospheric balloons that people are using to send Camilla the chicken up to outer space and to send all sorts of scientific payloads up to that boundary between the atmosphere and space, balloons are held up by the buoyancy principle because the inside of the balloon is made of a lower density material than the outside of the balloon or the air surrounding the balloon so they're able to float up. Sometimes it's something as simple as having a hotter gas and hotter gases have a um, lower density so it's able to be supported by the buoyant force. Sometimes it's a matter of using hydrogen or helium as the gas inside the balloon. So different balloons work in different ways. All of them are supported by the buoyancy force. All of them are able to carry payloads up, whether it be a human being taking photos or a uh, camera setup that's traveling to the boundary between atmosphere and space. Now we now he was sort of most famously known for the Archimedes principle, but he was able to you know we've mentioned this he sort of liked to play in almost every area, so he also worked on a lot of engineering type tasks as well. And I think one of the most famous things from there is is this the Archimedes screw. Right. So this is if if you've never been to a science museum, this is your excuse for going because most science museums will actually have a hand-on demo where you can turn a screw and it raises fluid up. It's it's just this neat system where it turns out that when you run a inclined plane that's shaped like a screw through fluid, the fluid will get carried up the inclined plane. It's just one of those awesome, wow, how did he figure it out? I have no clue how he figured it out. It was one of those moment of genius things that he did. He, he's also famous for figuring out levers, which seems like a really lame thing, but he was the person who figured out that if you want to lift a heavier object, you just need a longer lever arm, and that's the 
whole concept of with a long enough lever arm, you can move the planet Earth. Which is true, except you'd need some place to put the lever. But yeah. Right. And, and then you also have to figure out, well, what force is it that you're trying to displace? And that gets a little bit trickier. But yeah, it's it's entirely true. You could do it with a bunch of caveats. Right. And so just if, it, if, ne- if you've never seen an Archimedes screw, this is an idea. You've got like a cylinder and inside the cylinder, you've got a screw, like a great big screw bit. And then as you, and then a handle on the top. And as you turn yeah. this, the screw in the water, the water just moves up the cylinder and pours out the top. And this is a way that they were able to pull water out of wells and out of uh, rivers and stuff from a lower level to a higher level. Yeah. Just an amazing technology. You can imagine, you know, it saved you having to drop buckets down, had to, it was the kind of thing you could hook up animals to and be able to turn it and water just poured out the top. Like well, and, and unlike buckets, it's a continuous flow of fluid. So one, one of the more useful ways of using it was just to raise river water up a hill. So, so you can imagine you have the nice incline and then you have oxen at the top that are through a set of gears turning your screw with you and you're able to irrigate your fields. Yeah, that that probably would have been a huge. You could see why the general would have would have wanted him kept alive with yes. those kinds of ideas coming out of him. So now I think the other thing that Archimedes was really famous for was a lot of his work with circles and spheres and you know, and the math and the underlying math involved. He was an insane mathematician. There, there's a process that is called either the method of exhaustion or brute force, which, which is a way of, of solving math problems by basically doing a bazillion little tiny calculations. When you're first learning calculus, one of the things that they teach you is the area underneath a curve can be solved for by treating it as a whole bunch of little tiny rectangles and adding all of those little tiny rectangles together. Archimedes is the person you have to blame for that. I remember that. <laughs> and and so he used this brute force summation technique to get at the areas under curves uh, to start to figure out the volumes of rotated curves, uh, rotated volumes. He he set out to to figure out all sorts of volumes that nowadays we we happily solve using calculus and and because he did his brute force mechanisms he was able to come up with fairly accurate values of pi i mean you can't come up with a completely accurate unless you have infinite time value but he came out with a fairly precise value of pi and the thing he did that he was actually most proud of and the fact that he did it without calculus i kudos uh he was able to figure out that the volume and surface area of a sphere inscribed within a cylinder is two-thirds of that of the cylinder. So this means that if you take a sphere and you put it in a cylinder where the diameter of the cylinder is the same as the diameter of the sphere and the height of the cylinder is the same as the height of the sphere, then the area including the caps of the of the the cylinder is going to be larger than that of the sphere such that the sphere is two-thirds and it works for both area and volume which is just one of those neat little parallels that it that someone working in ancient greek greece could totally get behind so he actually when he died it was at his request there was a statue of of the sphere within the cylinder as as part of his burial that would be a very difficult statue to build. 
Yeah, I, I was actually really hoping as I was researching the show that I could find a picture of it. But it turns out that his tomb has been lost. And, and it was one of those moments of, huh, that's bizarre, because they thought they had found it in the 1960s. And then they misplaced it. And, and the fact that it got misplaced in modern times is something that highly disturbs me. But if you've ever got to travel through Greece or Italy, you're wandering around and everywhere you look, there's bits of ancient stuff. And you can sort of imagine someone needs to build a building and, and they have to get rid of the ancient stuff. And, and so I, I fear that overpopulation is, is slowly going to remove records of lots of really awesome old stuff. So let's talk a couple about a couple of his inventions and ideas that maybe weren't quite so based in reality and maybe it was a little more myth and legend that could perhaps have been busted recently. Well, I, I think I think you're getting at the idea that you could use mirrors to set flame to ships. What one of the, the great weapons of mass destruction of ancient Greece that, that Archimedes was given credit for was using mirrors to set fire to ships. The idea was you get a bunch of soldiers along the shore. They all have parabolic mirrors. They point their parabolic mirrors at the ship. Ship combusts. And there's been a couple of different tests on this. So the, the first test that, that was done on this was done in 1973. It was a Greek scientist, Ionis Sakis. I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing that. And, and it took place outside of Athens. So they had the sun at the same attitude that you would have, altitude rather, that you'd have it at. They used 70 mirrors. They were fairly large mirrors. They were 1.5 by 1 meter in size. So more than my arms span wide probably and, and uh, twice. Yeah, it, they, they were big. So 1.5 by 1 meter. 1 meter is is. 36 inches or so. So these were hard to hold, hard to manufacture, but they did everything they could to make them authentic. These were copper coated and they pointed all of these large mirrors at a plywood mock-up and the plywood mock-up very quickly at a distance of 160 feet caught on fire. So, so using these large mirrors, a fairly small distance, 160 feet, 50 meters about half a football field, they were able to set the boat on fire. Now, Mythbusters came along and tried to replicate this, but they opted to use much smaller mirrors, and then they put the ship at a greater distance. And they found that after about 10 minutes, they were able to get everything focused together, everything not moving, perfect weather conditions, they were able to get smoldering and a little bit of flames. So when you make it a slightly more realistic idea, it, it appears that maybe it doesn't work so well. And then when they repeated this again on Mythmusters a second time with an even more realistic, greater distance to the boat, they, they couldn't even with 500 school children be able to get things on fire. So it appears that Archimedes might have been able to set things on fire if they were like almost on top of, of the harbor and the mirrors were really big and the weather was perfect. And the other caveat was it had to be happening near dawn, early morning because the, where the sun was relative to the harbor. 
Mythbusters considers it busted, has guessed that likely what was actually happening was they were blinding people on the boat, shining mirrors into their face. Um, And flaming arrows are a whole lot easier to use to set fire to boats. So you can imagine someone getting blinded by a mirror and then all of a sudden their boat sets on fire. So you blame the mirror when really it was a flaming arrow. But I think actually shooting uh, or, you know, using the mirrors to blind people would actually be pretty effective when you think about it because you wouldn't be able to really get a sense of of where the troops are on the land where to yeah. where to land so if you just set up some some people maybe some non-combatants with these mirrors to to blind people that might be a fairly effective way to to keep people um at least add a little more confusion to the invasion and if you think about it, if if they were attacking at dawn, they were attacking with the idea of having the sun behind them to blind the people they're attacking. So it's the exact same strategy on both sides. One side is using the mirror to blind people, and the other side is just using direct sunlight to blind people. Yeah. Um, and now the other thing that he created was the, the claw. Have you heard about this? The Archimedes claw? No, that one I don't know about. <laughs> It was a, it was like a crane that could be used to kind of grab a ship, and and pull it out of the water as it was attacking. So, um, you know, and that people have again tried to test that out and see. There was a show. It was like Super Weapons of the Ancient World or something like that, and they tested out building an, an Archimedes claw, and uh, and they thought, yeah, maybe, maybe it might work, but it would have to be again, it would have to be really close, right? You'd have to have this gigantic, yeah, boom arm that would reach out, and you would grapple the and ship can't you just like sail out of reach of something like that it well, wouldn't uh, the, really be all that stealthy well I it's not about stealthy is the point is that as you're about these people are, are about to land about to invade you mess up their ship but yeah. I, it, it just i don't know it doesn't sound like it would, would have been the best the best way to go about it now now one of the things that we've always gone with was we try to balance try to match up the the scientist and their associated mission so has there been a mission for archimedes you know the ESA websites left me confused on this point there is in the late 80s and up until 1992 a bunch of references even in books to the esa european space agency Archimedes Satellite Network, which was a network of satellites that had uh, highly elliptical orbits that were going to be used to do telecommunications in Europe. And, And these are extremely useful because while they're going over the northern polar regions and sending signals to Scandinavia and other northern extremes that are kind of hard to get signals from geostationary satellites to, they're moving at near geostationary rates. And then they zip out and they move quickly on on their far out elliptical parts and then very slowly swing by again. So so this is a technique that's been used by the Russians and been used by others. But then I could never figure out if they launched the sucker. There's no references to it past 1992 that I was able to find. So I think this is a mission that didn't make it into existence. Um, what was fun, though, is I found references to trials that were the Eureka mission. So there, there's clearly some humor involved. Um, there's lots of books talking about this model. There's some journal articles. Can't figure out if it was launched or not. Hmm. Uh, well, I know the, I mean, the Europeans launched their Galileo constellation. Yeah. Right? Wasn't the Galileo? Anyway. There is communications going on in Europe. There, there is. A, no, no, but there's a GPS system that's being developed by the Europeans. So, so this is one of the mysteries. Yeah, 
Yeah, one of the mysteries. Okay. Now, was there anything else we want to talk about Archimedes while we're sort of flubbing he, the show? He is the father of brute force mathematics that we torture high school students with. And that is just kind of awesome. He left behind a series of books. And what's kind of amazing is because so much has been lost in the 2300 years since he worked, we don't even know if, if we lost more than we kept. So just imagine if, if, if the libraries in Alexandria had never been burned. Imagine if more texts had made it into the future. I, I think the only thing that we've left out so far is uh, one of the perfect spirals is, is the Archimedes spiral. This is a spiral that is formed when you have something that is rotating at a constant rate and moving away from the circle at a constant rate. And in polar coordinates, which is a way to define mathematics when things are moving around an axis in a symmetric way, it's a nice, clean equation where the distance that you're at is equal to A plus B theta, uh, where A is a constant that defines how wide it ends up being and B tells how quickly it's rotating. So he, he defined a spiral and that's kind of cool. And I know he also left a bunch of mysteries too. He he came up with a whole bunch of 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 mysteries like um what were they? Uh he he wrote a bunch of I guess a bunch of books, right? He measured on the yeah. measure of the circle, on spirals, on the sphere in the cylinder, on floating bodies. And so this is where a lot of these these books that came to us uh today. And then he he left a bunch of problems as well. Um uh, in one, he tried to count the number of grains of fan, sand that would fit yes. inside the universe. Um, uh, trying to count the number of cattle in a herd. So uh, he left a bunch of really interesting work. And I guess this was, you know, I wonder how much of, this, of his stuff might have been burned in the Library of Alexandria and how much of it remained. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. All we know is we've lost a lot of volumes. And... Imagine if he'd lived after we knew about calculus. He was already trying to do all sorts of problems that require uh, summations, that require set theory, that that require a whole lot of complex ways of dealing with large numbers. And and he came so close to discovering calculus, and I he just stopped at summation. That. You know, there's so many times when there are these these calculations, these discoveries, or even, you know, people are really close to even things like understanding how the human, you know, how the human circulatory system works, yeah. or the germ theory, or... Atomic uh, theory, with his grains of sand uh, idea. Yeah, or or in this case, you know, you can imagine that, that he had gotten that close to calculus. What would happen if they had been doing calculus 2000 years ago would that have changed anything so i always wonder if some of these just these yeah. discoveries that that almost they didn't require any specific time you know some of the modern stuff you needed the the materials and the and the equipment and the scientific discoveries to be able to even make these further discoveries but there's a lot of stuff that is just a you know evolution you just had to realize the way the world yeah. worked and then you could could make this discovery at almost any time I think you needed a fossil record to get to evolution, so that required a little bit of geology. 
No, but it, but it wasn't. I mean, they, they could have been geologists two thousand years ago, right? They could no, have been no, digging through the the rock layers and finding all of these dinosaurs. In fact, they might have been while they were building the pyramids. Who knows? But <laughs> so I wonder if you know some of these discoveries were made multiple times, and it's just that you know it never stuck until yeah, almost like the modern invention of the way the communication and the way the scientific method is maintained and communicated and the way the research is done that now now none of these discoveries are, are going to ever be lost but a long time ago people were making these discoveries and then they were getting lost so well yeah and and it's it's terrifying to think how much knowledge was lost between the burning of alexandria and the dark ages when knowledge was suppressed it it was the the arabic nations that that really cherished science and and knowledge and we we basically have the muslim middle east to thank for the fact that algebra survived yeah and um so many other different records that would have been lost had they not protected them yeah all right well thanks once again pamela and we will see you next week see you later fraser this has been astronomy cast a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website check it out at astronomycast.com you can send us any comments questions or feedback to info at astronomycast.com we read every email the show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.